Many of my dearest friends are leadership members of Black Lives Matter. I've marched with them in LA. I've marched with them in New York. I've been all over the place with them. I've sat with them in meetings. They have a lot of love in their hearts. They want to change the system. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Ruby Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. And we have third time guest, Dr. Tom Keith, to talk about his latest film, How Does It Feel To Be A Problem? And I guess in the spirit of Socrates, this is something I was thinking about. You know, one of the things that we learn in the trial of Socrates is that he learns more about himself, not by retreating from the world, but by going out into the world and dialoguing with different Athenians and to kind of unearth the truth of what is good and what is right and what is just. And I want to say that I think that Professor Keith approaches his work in a very similar vein. He is taking these discussions about race, about white supremacy, about otherness, and he is going out into the world and he is dialoguing with people. He's making it part of a documentary. And then he is, you know, sharing this knowledge so that we can get a more of an appreciation of the status of where America is when it comes to discussions like this. And it does make people uncomfortable. Yeah, I think this episode will make some people uncomfortable, especially, you know, if there are some listeners that have certain points of view about what their role is in um, the problems that certain ethnic groups face today. Maybe certain people think that I have nothing to do with that. I shouldn't be negatively impacted by stuff that's happened in the past. And Tom does a great job of really like bringing home the issues that disadvantaged communities face, continue to face, why they face them today, and why we all should play a part in trying to help those communities. And that's the primary focus of this film, which, yeah, it's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. And that's okay. Um, Life is not supposed to always be comfortable. You know, and it'll also do both. I think it'll make a lot of people who maybe been on the receiving end of this Mm -hmm. sense of otherness have a sense of relief that there is this dialogue going out there, that there is this documentary out there that is saying, I hear you. Let's talk about this. Let's learn more about your experience. Let's make your experience known. Let's get out of the shadows. So for example, there's a lot of discussion here about the rise of white supremacist groups and how they are not as obvious that they're covert. They're infiltrating different areas of the American system. And we also talk about what is systemic racism. Yeah, the only thing I would take issue with, uh, with what you said, and we bring this up during the episode, is when, when you say the rise of white supremacy. No, 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 no. It's the, they've always been there. It's, it's things like social media that maybe are giving a bigger platform for them or giving a platform for other people who had no idea that these groups were there or were harassing people or making people like myself feeling like the other for decades. But now there's a little bit more of a focus on these groups, but they've always been there. They didn't come out of nowhere. So I don't really like the term, the rise of the of right supremacy. I prefer the term of, you know, pulling the curtain away and like giving, giving more of a focus on something that has been a problem for many, many years. But it took people like myself or other people that, you know, saw these things and have focused on them to say, hey, look, like, no, these groups are problems. They've been there for many, many years. Let me tell you about them. That's fair. This is part one. If you want to hear part two, or you do want to hear part two, I'm sure of it. That'll be out next week. Okay, and let's talk, how does it feel to be a problem? 
Tom Keith, welcome back to the show. You know, I think this might be a record. I think I've done this show you know, three times. When yeah. So I think I have the record. And that's, yeah. I take that very seriously. <laughs> so is this your sixth film? This is my fifth film, actually. I did three with Media Education Foundation and then two. This is my second one where I'm taking it to festivals and doing all that. And, you know, it's been the biggest, one of the biggest learning curves of my life and still in process. But uh, yeah, this is my fifth film. You had actually mentioned this at the end of the last episode that we did with you, but tell us a little bit about the the point of this film. And actually, I'm interested in knowing what made it a learning curve for you. Is that a technical stuff? All of it. It's that and the business and the industry. About the film real quickly, you know, this is a film that centers around uh, the marginalized groups, race and ethnicity, particularly African-American people in this country, but it also looks at Native American people and Latinx people as well, and how people are marginalized. And let me make make it more clear that systemic racism is real in America. And the film sets out to prove that. And I think we do. Can I ask you something on that? And I'm going to kind of pull into some of your skills as somebody who teaches critical thinking. I thought that systemic racism was something that was objective, that you can look at the numbers and see it. So why is it that somebody would still say, I don't believe it? Because am I wrong here? Is it, it almost seems to me like a flat earther just saying I'm not believing it. But isn't systemic racism something that is measurable? You're, you're not incorrect. You're absolutely right. What has happened in the last, you know, let's, let's all be real here. What's happened in the last five, six years is our nation has gone upside down where right is wrong, left is right, you know, uh, all of that, since our our last beloved leader turned everything into a lie, right? That the truth is a lie. And he racialized that as well. So now you have millions of people in America that when they even hear the expression, Black Lives Matter, they think it's some kind of terrorist organization that's going around killing people in the streets. And I mean, they really do. That's not an exaggeration. I was just looking at the video that Jackson Brown put up of, of my trailer. And I'm looking at the comments, and that's what they're saying. Some people were saying, well, you're supporting a terrorist organization that's out, you know, uh, ambushing police officers and killing them in the night. And I'm just going, what? So that's why you're hearing so much backlash to this. Well, systemic racism is something measurable, is it not? Is it something that we can see and measure and document? Answer, yes. Does that prevent people from still denying it? Uh, no, as you said, the flat earth society is a real society. Some people think it's a joke. I think it's a joke, but they don't. And so that's where we are. We're in a weird place in American history in the 21st century where some people are, I, I want to say, maybe in the 18th or 19th century right now. And that's where we are. So we're trying to, as educators, shine a light in what has been a you know, formidable darkness over the last five years. I think one of the things that was disturbing for me that I learned in your film was the way in which the rise of white supremacist groups, that they are not hooded exactly anymore, that they are integrating into higher uh, professions that have power. Could you, was that a surprise to you or what has been the response to that? Are people denying that or saying that's not true? Uh, first of all, no, it's not a surprise to me. And, you know, I was raised in a, a very conservative, ultra conservative Christian upbringing family, a Southern Baptist, 
And there was a ton of racism around me when I was growing up. And so I, I'm used to seeing it. And no, they don't all wear hoods and sheets. By the way, some of them still do to their embarrassment, but a lot of them don't. And, you know, I have the leader of the largest neo-Nazi organization in America on film admitting that there are police officers around the country that support them, and some of them are car-carrying Nazis. And so there it is, right from the horse's mouth. Will there be people that will still deny it? Yes. I mean, it, you can have the video of, of them doing it. It doesn't matter. They're just going to say it's all fake news. This is all made up. And they won't believe it. it it's, it's a very frustrating place to be, you know, to say, here's the documentation. Please look at it so we can come together and fight against it. And they won't look at it. And if they do look at it, they just assume it's all a lie. And they don't want to go any further, not to mention all the pejorative things they're going to say to you and the name calling and everything else that has been unleashed in the last five years. You know, when I go to screenings and stand in front of audiences for the last film in this film, a lot of people are really wonderful and supportive, and that's terrific. But I get that kind of pushback, you know, from these people who are indoctrinated. That's how I see it. I don't think they're stupid. I think they're indoctrinated. And so they come from a very specific political and social perspective. And anything that runs against that narrative, they see as the enemy. And they're going to come, you know, with, with guns blazing, literally sometimes. Back to the systemic racism, maybe, what is the definition of it? Right. So when we're saying we're looking at that, you know, this is fact, this is measurable. Is it something that has always been the case and now we're talking about it? Why are there deniers of it right now? Or have there always been deniers, but maybe we just have more media and we hear them more? Uh, it has always been the case. I mean, since colonization happened in America anyway, and the founders came over here owning slaves and, and being slave traders. So it's always been the case. Systemic racism means that it's systemic within institutions, that it's measurable within institutions, that it's not simply some guy hates some guy and they don't like each other because of their skin color. It means that institutions are supporting racist policies and that this is documented in the way that they're treating people. You can look at incarceration rates in this country as one measurable item, but you can see within police departments themselves, when the Justice Department went into uh, Ferguson, Missouri, in the wake of, of that riot that happened there, what they uncovered were emails, text messages, memos throughout there telling the police officers to target black people. It was in the literature of the police department there at Ferguson. This is all documented. The FBI report in 2000, it is 2006, I want to say, documented widespread infiltration of law enforcement by white supremacists and that nothing was being done about this. Uh, so these are institutions now that have been infiltrated, you may say, by white supremacists and other people that hate people of color and believe that there's a, a race war coming. And so there, you, you see it within institutions. You see it in law enforcement. You see it now in the military. You see it in, in groups that infiltrate covertly. They realize that they came out and said, oh, yes, and I'm a Nazi. They get fired. And some of them have, by the way. There have been hundreds of cases around the country now. In Philadelphia, there was a huge scandal of hundreds of police officers being suspended after being caught on social media using the N-word, using other racial epithets and, and threats about against African-American people. Not two or three. Well, there's a few bad apples. There are thousands of bad apples. And they're in a profession where you can't have bad apples because it's life and death. You can't say, well, there's a you know, few of them, and, and sometimes they don't make the burger just the way you want it. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people's lives, you know, that are being killed, and then nothing happens 
no indictments, no changes, sometimes no firings, and they, they return to full and active duty as in the Stephon Clark case. We've got a problem. Black Lives Matter is trying to say, please stop shooting us. That's it. They're not going around mugging people or murdering people. They're not, they don't hate white people. Many of my dearest friends are leadership members of Black Lives Matter. I've marched with them in LA. I've marched with them in New York. I've been all over the place with them. I've sat with them in meetings. They have a lot of love in their hearts. They want to change the system. That's no doubt about it. They want to end systemic racism and allow the liberation of black and brown people so that they're not under the threat of constant uh, pursuit, harassment, incarceration over anything. So they can, they can just enjoy their lives like everyone else and live the American dream. That's what they want. I'm interested in your perspective in that if it has, if it has any impact whatsoever, I was actually talking to one of my girlfriends about this, that as the, the way that there's the point of view of what, let's just say, a straight white woman is a Karen. And so it actually seems like there's a bit of a hurdle to say, wait a minute, no, 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 I'm not. Yes, I am those things, but I'm not the Karen. I mean, I told my friend, always approach discussions about race with a humility. That for me, when I recognize when I'm talking with my students, for instance, I read a lot about race or I read by black authors or different authors, authors of color, authors from other areas of the world. But I recognize that when I put the book down, I walk out into the world as a white woman. So I, that humility is something that I share with my students so that I don't try to pretend like, oh, hey, I get it. I've read everything you know, and so I understand. I'm wondering what is your experience and kind of, or do you find that there's any kind of a way to navigate that humility of recognizing that you are the outsider of the people who are oppressed and yet you're on the side of the people who are oppressed? Yeah. First of all, I think you're completely correct in that there has to be a sense of humility and honesty just to say, I don't, I don't have the lived experiences you have. I don't have the, the history that you have. And so that means that I am a student, you might say. I'm listening. I'm learning. My role here is in is that of ally, supporter, not savior, not co-opter of the movement. And there have been a few people who are doing that right now, and I'm not going to name names, that are white people trying to co-opt movements. I don't think that's our place. I think our place as white people is to support, to be allies, to learn and grow, and to talk to other white people and not lecture people of color and, and white explain to them what it's like to be a person of color. That's ridiculous and that's pretentious and pompous. So we have to have the correct amount of humility going into these conversations, absolutely. Rudy, I wonder what you think about that. I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, in particular, we were talking earlier about the denial. Um, one of the, the worst memories that I have recently was um, being in Las Vegas with, with, with a friend and, and his wife and getting into a, a backstory about a film that I had wrote, uh, which was semi-autobiographical about my dealings with the skinheads in 1990 Orange County in Huntington Beach. And I was recalling, you know, what it was really like in the 90s and there were these skinheads and, and how these groups are still around and how I was getting yelled at and shushed to close my mouth because I couldn't produce documentary data, science, evidence that white supremacists exists. This person was so convinced that I was lying because these experiences that I had with my own eyes, but because I couldn't produce a document that she would accept to say that there are right white supremacists, it was one of the most frustrating things I had ever experienced in my life. My friend stayed silent and I sat there and I could do nothing except for get up and walk away and never talk to them ever again. 
I, I didn't know what else to do. Uh, I mean, when somebody treats you like that and they won't listen to you, maybe walking away was a stupid thing. I don't know. I just was so frustrated. You know, Tom, let me, I mean, am, am I, am I, am I talking nonsense here? Or is this something that you, I think you did the right experience. Look, I've been around these people since I was a kid and you're not going to get through to a lot of these people. We have to realize that there are people who are reachable and there are people who are not. And when you meet these individuals, what do you do? Are you going to spend your good time trying to convince these people that there's a racism problem when they're denying facts, when they don't want to hear it? And let's be honest, some of them themselves are racist and they're in denial about that because they know that, well, admitting I'm racist means I'm a bad person. So they don't want to get into all this and they want to see America as squeaky clean. We're a land of opportunity for everybody. Come on, don't you? Know, that's the myth they believe. This person... She's absolutely racist because for the prior two days, I had heard her say many things that, that were offensive that I would, you know, shoot back at. And that's okay. She was a racist. I'm never going to see her again. I had no interest in her and, and I would say something back to her. It was not just was the racism. It was the denial of belief that there actually are systemic racist groups that exist in this country notwithstanding whatever evidence you you refuse to, for me to provide to you other than my own eyes and experience that was so shocking i could do nothing except for to just walk away from this person and have no more dealings with her, or her husband i mean literally so yeah I, I mean i've had that i've had that experience when so while you were speaking yeah. Tom was speaking I, I, I thought back to that experience and then something else that's that has been troubling me for a long time seeps through into all of my own personal writings and all my science fiction writing and all my dystopian writing is the rise of the far right anti-government groups. And, you know, and these groups uh, like to, you know, just say, Oh, there's just too much government. There's too much government in our lives. They're telling us how to think. They're telling us, you know, that we're bad people. They're telling us that are racist. Let's shut down the government. These groups are growing. They're messing with election laws. And so I have a lot of fear where you have where you have these crossroads of these groups gaining power to eventually take down a government or bring back extreme states' rights to a point where who knows what it's really going to be like in certain states that are currently read in the future. I look at that stuff and I focus on it as an attorney, as a writer, as a person, and then I blow it up to the extreme because I'm a dystopian writer, but it's all happening. And it's like, I can see the roadmap of a really dark, terrible future. Tom, do you agree or disagree? Not only do I agree, I think that some people, including those of us who are progressives or liberals, need to wake up. I think with Trump being gone, there's this exhale, collective exhale, that, okay, we weathered that storm, while all this other shit is brewing, like the Texas law, the, the voting suppression laws that you were just re referencing, and the white supremacist groups and these anti-government groups who've been around a long time, but they've gained a great deal of momentum. I, I mean, momentum that I've never seen in my lifetime. They now number in the multi-millions of people that are behind these things. And they were sort of outlier fringe organizations when I was younger. And, and they're no longer, they are mainstream. You know, we can take lessons from history. We've seen fascism grow in other countries throughout history. We know some of the recipes that bring that about. And so we can't be blind and think, well, that doesn't happen here. And I do think there are people who believe that. They think, well, our constitution will protect us. I'll tell you who protected us. Uh, when Trump tried to con continue in office and lead the insurgency upon the government was our judiciary. That's the branch of government that came through because the senators and, and the uh, House of Reps, they were enabling him. 
they were backing up his lies and, and going along with him. And that's two thirds of government right there. So we're thinking, oh my God, we have one more domino. And it was the judiciary that stepped up and said, there is no evidence of massive voter fraud here. And they threw those cases out. And that's the only reason that we're not embroiled in maybe a bigger civil war right now. But we should never be complacent and think, well, that can't happen here. That's just too, that's too uh, naive and ignorant and dangerous. Yeah, I totally agree. The judiciary, as an attorney, you know, you really, when you're in law school, your your eyes are open to the tragedies of this world and the power of the judiciary. I had that same exact discussion with my brother-in-law recently about, oh, January 6th is over, everything is fine. And I said, well, we got really lucky on January 6th. Uh, you know, it had had Mike Pence not done, had that not been Mike Pence or whatever had happened there, or if it had been any other individual, Lord only knows what would have happened. This is not me applauding Mike Pence or saying great things about him. I'm just saying things could have got a lot worse had he not done what he had done that day. Plus our judiciary and a lot of things that needed to go right went right. In the future, Lord only knows if that's ever going to happen again. If we're, are we going to get that lucky again? Or can we slip into a dystopian world called the New Year? States where people come into power and they start changing the constitution. People come into power and they start changing all of the laws. It's happening. I'm sorry. I, I see it happening. I'm not trying to be a, you know, a sensationalist. I see it happening every single day. Oh, Rudy, I have a question then for Tom based on that. When you're saying we got lucky, but even the fact that it happened and you have the rise of these white supremacist groups that I think the rise started during the Obama administration, that that's when they started to go on the uptick. So Tom, what is the role of social media because it's not as though white supremacy is brand new but the expression of it is new and scary and i am wondering if it's because there's all these possibilities on different social media platforms where they can get together and then they're only interacting with each other and they don't have they get into that bubble where you know it's like let's show up in charlottesville what does every white guy have khakis we'll do khakis and that all seemed to make sense for probably for everybody who showed up because they had been online talking about it and then when their pictures got blasted all over the place then there was that awareness of no this is actually a horrible thing but i'm just wondering in any of your work what does social media have to do with this and rudy i can see you want to say something i do yeah because really quick we actually talked about this very same topic with professor white i think it was the second show where we actually said no no social media what it did was it showed the mirror it expanded the mirror it expanded mm -hmm. the access of people like us who quote unquote white people who didn't know there was that this much racism out there but it's always been there. social media yeah. is just blowing it up it's exposed what has always been there but I mean, like, go, I think go about the people look. in Charlottesville, though. I have a feeling that somebody, like, there are some people who went into a rabbit hole. Like, maybe weren't all that bright and were sitting down, and then they're only interacting with other people who are increasing that sense. And because those, that's their only interaction, that that's why they all decided to get khakis and show up there. Tom? Yeah, so social media, <laughs> giant propaganda echo chamber. It's why it accelerates what's already a bad thing and it multiplies it. It's why we probably didn't see the rise of these groups sooner. Meaning, without social media, you wouldn't see the kind of organized events that you see, like Charlottesville and other things. I've been teaching critical thinking for 27 years, and I've now come to the point where I, I believe that it's critical thinking versus social media, that they are a collection of the enemy, if you will. Amen. Damn it, that was good. That's the best way I've ever heard that. Sorry, Tom. People spread memes in, in, in microseconds. They're just all over the world, and they're sharing them, and they go, oh, did you hear? 
did you know? And the bullshit factor is just through the roof. No one has documentation. And suddenly, what, what would have been some little enclave somewhere in a white supremacist group where they're you know whispering to each other are now millions of people around the country are repeating this crap. And here we are as critical thinking professors around the country trying to inform our students about reliable sources, about how to get the facts and using evidence you know, to back up your, your beliefs. Evidence, schmevidence in 2021, it's just blown completely out the window. As we all know now, what's truth is a lie and what's a lie is the truth. And I used to say, this. I, I told my students this semester, I go, I've lived long enough where one of my sayings has come true. I used to tell students, you deny science and critical thinking at the risk of your life. And I thought, eh, I'm probably overstating that. I'm not overstating it. Now, thousands of people are dead because they believe some lie about the virus that was put out by this president who downplayed it and thought and acted like it was the cold for political reasons, of course. And some people drank bleach and they weren't wearing masks and they won't get vaccinated. Critical thinking now, you, you ignore science and critical thinking at the risk of the life and the people that you love. And that's no longer, you know, hyperbole or just a saying to get attention in the classroom. That's a fact. I never thought I would live this long to witness what I'm witnessing. I can't believe people are dying willingly over lies and that they that they will not look at the facts. And unfortunately, your life might get shortened. That's the reality, because people's choices are not just personal choices in this regard. The things that they can choose to do and choose not to do will, will have a direct impact upon your life and, and, and my life. And that's where, you know, it's it's fascinating. The responses that we're seeing these days to these anti-vaccination mandates is it really, it's, it's, it, it's something that's been settled law for well over 100 years. But because of social media, but because of the spread of lies, because of the group think, you know, are we going to start seeing the unwinding of vaccination mandates, polio coming back, et cetera, et cetera. So what you're saying about the denial of science will come back and haunt you, that you predicted it many years ago, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, man. But I think with the critical thinking thing, you know, I've been so frustrated with the meme culture because I've told my students, if you can put your political ideas into a meme, you have stopped thinking. You are no longer thinking. And even when we read, this is for intro, I was just giving them a lecture the other day about we're going over arguments for and against the existence of God. And so we're doing some Aquinas stuff. And I had to sit back and say, you know, whether or not God exists is not actually what I want you to get out of this. What I really love about this text is that Aquinas is sitting down and he is giving you, he is restating previous arguments for the existence of God, arguments against the existence of God, and then he addresses them. And this is what critical thinking is. If you cannot restate your opposition's point of view and then go ahead and try to dismantle it, but if you can't do that, then you are not thinking you're not actually engaged. And that's what happens with the Facebook memes is that they are not engaging at all. Yeah, and if I if I can bring this to race and, and what we've been talking about at the, at the top of the hour, part of why there's this shutdown are these culture wars. And that's why everything we talked about in the first 30 minutes is pertinent and relevant to this conversation. There's a culture war going on so that if you are on the side of anti-racism, right, and anti-bigotry, well, that's all tied up with 
uh, liberalism and progressiveness and big government and all of these other things that have been villainized, right? They've been vilified, I should say. And so all of it gets lumped together as the enemy. And now you have two sides that are not communicating the way they used to. There've always been political debates. There've always been disagreements about things. But now we just have an utter shutdown between two groups over these massive things and nobody wants to break the, I, the logjam. My fear, and I got, a, I have a sense that Rudy probably shares my fear after hearing me say is that we may not, we may not. And then what? The last book of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was called, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? That was his last book. And that title needs to be broadcast today. Where do we go from here? We are, again, all of the white supremacists I spoke to, and that was not a lot of fun. Um, they're all looking forward to a massive civil war. I mean, they, when I ask so do you think a, a civil war is not only is going to happen, they can't wait. They're chomping at the bit. They're loading up with lots of weapons. They've already got their enemies picked out. They're ready to go. I understand that that's still a, a fringe element. I mean, I want to believe that's a fringe element. But I've been to a lot of states in making this film. I sat down with a bunch of white supremacists. They're not stupid. I want to get that one straight. They're not a bunch of idiots. But they are bigots. And they are indoctrinated. And they are angry. They're organized. They are well-armed. And so I think it's, it's a... It's, it's a massive mistake and a dangerous mistake not to be taking this stuff seriously and to think that we can go back to our, our lives before all of this and everything's going to be okay. I think we have to be very uh, vigilant and organized on our side as well. But we also need to break some of these conversations open so we can talk to people, find some kind of common ground so that at the end of the day, there's still something remaining that resembles the America that cares about you know, uh, opportunity for everybody that cares about ending racism. One of, the, one of the great, we've had many great moments in this country, right? We had terrible moments in this country. We've had many great ones. And the great ones to me was, were always those moments where we helped those who had the least privilege and power. That we helped people rise who had been oppressed, who had been marginalized. And we've done that. And now there's, there's this concerted effort to turn our backs on that and go back to the 1950s or I believe the 1850s is where, you know, so many people want to go. And we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. As you're talking to the white supremacists, what was the common theme? What is at the heart of their concern? What are the weapons for? What is the war for? What's underneath all of that activity? What is the idea propelling it? Is it simply that characterization is based on one's genetics and that there is an order and that has to be restored? Why is there such an investment in that? If you're an intelligent person and there are so many other things to do, in your time. There's so many other things to buy. There's go to a movie, listen to a symphony. Like there are so many other things to do. What is at the heart here? What's the fear or the hope? I think the, the eugenics piece that you were referring to, I think that's part of it. Yes. But the bigger part of it is they sincerely believe that America is a white Christian nation and was founded for white Christian people. They really believe that. They have a false narrative about history too, of course, you know, this notion of what the founding fathers were trying to achieve. I know if I, I'm walking on eggshells when I, when I say something like this, 
many of the white of the uh, founding fathers were white supremacists and that's that's just a fact you can read their letters and what they thought about people from africa it is white supremacist all right does that mean that america is a white christian nation of course not it's ridiculous to say that we should be originalists and go back to what the people thought when they were bringing slaves over here and we should think like them that's ridiculous but they are driven in fact, there's one white supremacist in my film, and I can't wait for people to see him because he was the, the lead neo-Nazi in America for 27 years. And guess what? He just renounced it all. And he has completely turned his back on it. He was, yeah. at, he was at the Simon Wiesenthal Center giving a, a talk recently. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I looked it up. Sure enough, he has now committed himself to social justice and feels that he has to completely turn his life around. And I sat down with him for hours and hours in Detroit and interviewed this guy. And what made him so interesting is he could take us inside and say, here's what's going on. There's a radicalization process that's going on all the time within these movements, right? And so it's a huge echo chamber. He compares it to like being in a cult where you have your tribe against everyone else. And it is war, and that's how they see it. So you're either with them or you're an enemy. The way that the current neo-Nazi, he wore his uniform, I call it his costume. This was in Florida, and I'm with one camera guy, all right? And, of course, I brought a white camera guy. I'm not going to put any of my crew that are people of color in harm's way. Not that we weren't, because I didn't know what we were walking into. We were in an Airbnb out in the middle of a swamp somewhere. And this guy shows up in his costume, and he says... You're either a communist or you're a Nazi. And that's how he sees America. It's this either or and obviously ridiculous extreme dichotomies of what, you know, America is now. You have to make a choice. You know, what side are you on? And that's very simple-minded either or thinking, but it's also, you know, this convoluted mess. And so that's part of their echo chamber. You're either with us or you're against us. And, and we're fighting for the soul of this country. Just like Biden might say, this is a fight for the soul. They're saying the same thing. Of course, their vision is fascist, white supremacy, and that's what they see as the soul of the nation. So both sides really do believe with passion that they're fighting on the right side for the soul of America. Is there a place in the United States where it's more concentrated? And then is there any environmental factors that make that the case? Or that's also what I'm wondering about the internet, if almost as though that doesn't even exist, that the actual physical location is irrelevant now. It used to be Idaho. Idaho was a, was a really big uh, was a place for white supremacists. Very well still might be, but I know that that used to be, back in the 70s and 80s, one of the headquarters. I know Timothy McVeigh spent a little time up there as well, and there were a number of groups that were based out of there. I'm fascinated by the history of white supremacists in this country, and it always bleeds into everything that I'm writing. No, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to speak ahead, but uh, do you, Idaho used to be a place. So where, where is it now, Tom? And anyone listening to this, if you go to the Southern Poverty Law Center's website, they have a map of the United States there. And all the little dots that you're seeing there are the headquarters of all the different hate groups all over America. And when you look at it, it looks like America has the measles. It's everywhere. I think when people think historically, they think of the Deep South. And of course, it's still there. But it's, it's in New England. It's here in California. It's everywhere. The skinheads, Rudy, you were talking, they're still here. They haven't oh. left. They're still oh. here. You can still see remnants of them when you go down to uh, Huntington Beach. In fact, it was kind of not funny, but there was a some kind of a racist rally that was occurring in April or May in Huntington Beach, California. They all got together on, on a Saturday 
And guess who was there this time, who, who was never there when I was growing up? The Black Lives Matter movement were there and they were there in numbers and their numbers were even bigger. So the racist rally like really fizzled out very, very quickly because everybody else had showed up. So it's like, okay, there is hope. You know what I mean? Like, yes, there, there's these groups that are still out there, but there are also stronger groups of people. They'll show up and they'll say, nope, we don't believe in what you, go ahead, practice free speech, do what you wanna say, but we're here too to oppose your message. But back to your point, yes, they are definitely still in Huntington Beach. They didn't disappear. They may have just hidden briefly, but they're still there. And let me say this, that Charlottesville caused a lot of them to sort of go underground. They're, they're trying not to be as visible right now because the FBI has them on their, on their radar and they know that. Upstate New York is a huge place for white supremacy. I mean, around Buffalo, you, you, there are places, what I'm saying is that you may not expect it. There it is. And these are people that hold down jobs, you know, and are, are in the middle of the communities and, and working in banks. A lawyer here in Los Angeles is the president of the National Freedom Party. And he was a Trump delegate and he's a white separatist. I interviewed him and he looks straight into the camera and he says, what we need is a white America. We need our own place. And this is an attorney in Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles, all right, with clients and all of this. Not, not me. I'm an attorney. Is not. <laughs> this is not, I, I am not a part of that. Sorry, I just want to make that very clear. <laughs> Rudy's, not, Rudy's not at the cooler talking with this person. His staff, they're all people of color. Oh. His staff is black, the people there are Latino. I wonder if they even know who they're working with. And he comes out and he looks very unassuming and he's in his suit and he sits down. And I say, I, I, I expected someone different looking. And he comes out and I say, so what do we need to fix America? We need a white America. He, all this shit just comes flying out of me. And I'm looking at him like, are you serious? You know, like, how do you get clients? Because he's, he's got his own websites and all of this stuff. So he's not hiding the fact of who he is. But here he is, downtown LA in, a, in an expensive building. He's doing accident law. Maybe that explains. Ah, it. ah, okay. <laughs> that, that explains. Uh, this is me being. This is me being the snobby lawyer. Oh, those, those PI lawyers. Oh, that means of course, they, they're just they're just chasing ambulances. That, but but I will say that does make it makes a little bit more sense, Tom. In that, just two things. He is probably working for himself. He probably has his own law firm, and so the types of clients that he has, they, they could come from anywhere. Those clients really don't care, probably about his political views, they just want, and they probably don't even know them. They just want to get a settlement very, very quickly. So I would, it's not like he's got, you know, Bank of America or the big banks, you know, Union Bank or, or you know, any of the big financial institutions, because no way would those guys even go near this type of a person. So that does, you saying that does actually explain how he is out in the open. And that wraps up part one of our conversation with Dr. Tom Keith. Part two will be out next week. If you're enjoying the show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. And if you'd like to support the show, we're on Patreon, patreon.com slash good is in the details. I will put that link in the show notes in addition to Tom's work in the show notes. If you have any questions or if you would like to sponsor a show, you can get in touch, good is in the details pod at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram, good is in the details pod, and we're on Facebook. Okay, until next time, bye.